Welcome to Black Diplomats, the dopest podcast on foreign policy in America. I'm your host, Terrell Jermaine Starr, and today we're talking about U.S.-Russia nuclear weapons policy. And we have two experts from Russia and Ukraine to break that down. Starting off with Yekaterina Mikhalenko, who is an associate professor at the Department of International Relations, Euro Federation University, and the Russian Federation Yekaterinburg. And she specializes in nuclear weapons policy in Russia. Polina Sinovets is an associate professor and the Department of International Relations at the Odessa Mishnikov National University and head of the Odessa Center for Non-Proliferation based at Odessa National University. She's the author of more than 70 research publications in scientific journals dealing with nuclear weapons policy of states, non-proliferation regimes, and nuclear deterrence theory. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the things I've always been interested in, and a lot of my audience uh, knows this, is that I'm I'm interested in nuclear weapons um, non-proliferation, particularly, but it's also a subject that most people don't know about. But, you know, particularly between America and Russia, much of our defense budget is devoted to nuclear weapons in regards to developments, maintenance, et cetera. And so right now we have a, a campaign season going on and you all know that Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee for president and he's going to be uh, running against the incumbent president, uh, Donald Trump. And so we both, we all know the, implic- the implications of what this means if Trump wins or if Biden wins in regards to nuclear policy relations between not only America and Russia, but the rest of the world. Um, so we definitely want to talk about that, what that means, but also on a local level between Ukraine and Russia as well, um, where you both are specialized. And so I just want to before we even get started with that, I want you to introduce yourselves and talk about what uh, your interests in nuclear weapons uh, policy and what brought you to this work. So, Polina, I'll start with you. My name is Polina Sinovets, and uh, as you know, it's already heard that I'm the head of Odessa Center for Non-Proliferation. Um, I'm uh, probably I can tell that I'm in the field for since 2000. Uh, when I was uh, when I started to write my PhD dedicated to nuclear deterrence in uh, U.S.-Russia policy, and um, um, I don't know whether you are interested in my child experience in this field. Yes, please. Yes, we are. I can tell that um, the first interest uh, to this field was brought uh, by my um, uh, uh, primary school teacher. Uh, which was uh, at the end of the very end of the Cold War. But she was an old teacher and she had a very good uh, Communist Party training. So um, when we came to the first lesson at our school, uh, it was a peace lesson. We had peace lessons that time. And she told us that, you know, guys, it was late Soviet Union, you know that um, the Americans have uh, developed a very powerful nuclear bomb and um, this nuclear bomb will be soon dropped on us because we're enemies. But don't worry, guys, we have a very good news as well because we already do have the similar kind of uh, powerful bomb. So at the moment when we um, 
they will send their bomb to us, we'll strike them. And at that point, uh, the whole world will be exploded. So it was the first introduction to nuclear weapons uh, in my life. And um, what we all clearly wow. understood probably that day was that we're all mortal and maybe we'll die very soon. So uh, that kind of emotional uh, feeling of, uh, you know, really something emotional taken uh, from the knowledge about world uh, was knowledge about nuclear weapons. So when I was thinking about um, which field I'm going to pick up, I was thinking not only doing it um, intellectually, but also doing it in a way which would involve my emotional uh, side. That's why I came to Russia, US and nuclear deterrence and uh, the fear of this uh, uh, mutual annihilation, probably. That's my story. Um, yeah. How old were you when, when your teacher told you this? I was six years old. Six. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I remember this very well. <laughs> and I think everyone who was with me at the class also uh, remembered it very well. So tell us, tell us where you were. Um, you know, you're here in Ukraine, right? I work oh. at uh, Odessa National University uh, as the uh, associate professor at the Department of International Relations, but also I'm the head of Odessa Center for Nonproliferation. So as you see that I keep pursuing the goal of uh, dealing with nuclear weapons all my life. So our first teachers defined our lives very strongly. Uh, sometimes uh, they even don't know what they do with us, but but still it's uh, it matters. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But you were in Odessa when your teacher told you this story, right? Yes, I was in Odessa, similar, but we all were the members of the Soviet Union. And by the way, as I know, after, uh, no, read after, afterwards when I was already not a child, that Odessa was always among the primary targets of the United States. Uh, during the potential nuclear war. So our teacher uh, had certain <laughs> point when she was telling that. But of course, um, and of course what was good in that, I think that there was a very strong teaching that nuclear war uh, will lead to the end of the world anyway. I mean, in a very primitive war, uh, way, but uh, that communist idea was that there can't be a nuclear war, otherwise we all die. And this is a good thing that the idea of non, no possibility of winning in the nuclear war, I think it's much better than what's going now in some of our countries. Speaking about the ideas that it can be, there can be some victory in nuclear war, there can be some advantage. I think that it was much, it was much better, that kind of thinking. Got you, got you. So, Yekaterina, um, so how, how about your introduction to the field? It's interesting because uh, I also started to, uh, to, to do research on this area in the beginning of the thousands, but you know, my school experience was differently, um, was very different from Paulina's because, uh, um, you know, I was 16 when Samantha Smith wrote her letter to our um, uh, leader of the Communist Party. And I was, uh, when I was 16, it was period when we struggled, uh, struggled for the peace for the disarmament, you know, Soviet Union usually uh, has this official propaganda that we need to to deter these Americans, these uh, how to say bad guys. So that's why m my feeling in that period that I was on the right side. 
and uh, I was fighting for the peace and for the disarmament. So my experience, my school experience was totally different. And we sang these songs, uh, these disarmament songs. And in 2018, in 2018, I was in Scotland and I participated in peace movement, you know, directly. So, and many years later in 2018, I felt the same as a, when I was a school girl, I felt that I was, uh, I, I am on the right side. So. And my research first was devoted not to, to nuclear arms, it was devoted to the regional European and Russian security issues. And um, I don't like nuclear weapons and I'm not interested in nuclear weapons. I'm interested in nuclear non-proliferation regime and disarmament. I think that it's very important not to calculate arms and not calculate ballistic missiles. I think and to, to, to compare who has more or much uh, stronger arsenals. I think that the very important thing is to, to find the, uh, the solution, how to, how to survive, how to, um, how to create this, a safe world. So that's why maybe uh, I'm more specialist in regimes, in nuclear non-proliferation regimes, in negotiation process, but not maybe in the, all these uh, weapons. <laughs> Absolutely. I thank you. And so I'm also uh, not interested or like nuclear weapons. I think we can all agree on that. And so um, we'll definitely talk about nonproliferation. That's the basis of it. Um, I want to talk about uh, New Start. And for those who are listening, uh, New Start is the uh, Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. And so right now, and it's scheduled to uh, expire in February. Right. So I checked out scheduled to, um, to expire in February. And so basically um, what this is, is that it is it limits the number of deployed strategic nuclear nuclear warheads uh, to fifteen hundred and fifty and which is down from nearly two thirds from the uh, original start treaty, um, as well as 10 percent lower than deployed strategic warhead limit of the Moscow Treaty. And so. Um, basically, the goal is a, it's a way of deterring countries from having advantage over one another. But basically, what's happening now is uh, it's going to expire. And so we have a camp. We have an election in February. What are the implications of this treaty um, not being either extended or a new one um, developing or happening? Um, depending on if Trump or if Joe Biden wins. So let's start with you, Polina. Okay, um, I think that <clears throat> today um, the chances of extend, extending new starts are not really high, but they are a bit higher than uh, a couple of months ago, because recently um, uh, Trump administration started to discuss um, the necessity to talk with Russians uh, about uh, the extension of START Treaty. And um, also there was a sort of an idea that the United States are not going to deny uh, the extension uh, in case if uh, Russians would follow their uh, conditions. But as I understand that uh, the, those conditions are not uh, really likely to be fulfilled, uh, they want to engage China, which is not going to be engaged um, 
until uh, the United States and Russia would be close uh, in the numbers of warheads uh, to China, which is 290. <laughs> and, and by the way, how many do does the America have, by the way? Wow, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I guess it's about, uh, uh, as for deployed, it's about 5,000 and something. Uh, and Russia about 6,000 and something. Uh, but, uh, and of course, China is to 290 which is much less. And even uh, if uh, the United States and Russia um, would have uh, just uh, uh, 1,500 uh, 1, uh, only total nuclear warheads, it would be still um, um, very far from China's level, which is three times uh, smaller. So anyway, it, it's, it's a real problem to involve China at this point. And also the idea to include uh, all kinds of uh, new nuclear arms in the new treaty, uh, which Trump administration suggested looks really unlikely because that is not uh, foreseeing that uh, new kinds of weapons as underwater torpedoes, for example, like Poseidon and other types of weapons. So um, that is why um, the, the issue of start treaty extension under Trump administration, I think is still under the big question, but it's not excluded, of course. And if Biden wins, I think that he'll be much more willing to extend that treaty and uh, showing that it's just the um, first step to negotiating the new kind of treaty with Russia, which I think is uh, quite a wise approach. So I think that uh, under Democrats uh, and the Democratic administration, start, new start has much more chances to be extended. Uh, your thoughts, Ekaterina? Um. It's, it's very complicated. You know, the problem is that any treaty, the, any treaty, they do not, uh, the treaties, they do not um, exist in a vacuum. So all these negotiations, I mean, disarmament or arms control negotiation process, uh, it started in 70s, 1970s. So, and new start, I think it was like a little, uh, little step how, uh, uh, how to, to a little bridge maybe between uh, the Cold War period and a new period. So I think that this is the problem of this treaty, that it, it wasn't the real treaty of uh, like it was in 70s or in 80s. So and uh, all these talks around uh, how to extend this treaty or to negotiate new, a new one, I think it's the problem of relationship between two countries. And both countries, I think, are not ready to negotiate from my point. And all these um, talks about the concrete uh, type of arms, uh, concrete uh, technical problems, uh, it's like, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, it's not the problem of the concrete arms. I think it's problem how to start, how to negotiate maybe these issues. And I think that both countries, they are not ready. Um, we are speaking different languages and it's, it's very evident when you are participating in UN, when you see Russian and uh, American diplomats, they use different languages. So like from, what? From my point, uh, I think that um, Russia now, it is not country which is like, it, it is not equal to the, to the USSR. So I think that we are trying to, uh, I mean, Russian, uh, Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs and Russian Foreign Policy is trying to reconstruct this uh, power balance, this bilateral relationship. So this, um, these uh, treaties, this uh, negotiation process uh, is associated with our um, expectations. And I think that U.S. administration has its own policy uh, and, and it's very different from Russia's. 
I was going to ask you, what, what's the American position? American position is that Russia is, uh, you know, it is, the, it, I, I would like to tell, to tell about the context. So when, yes. when I was last year uh, in UN uh, participating as observer on non-proliferation uh, um, preparatory committee to, to NPT review conference, uh, you know that uh, there was many demanding, many, um, many things so American diplomats, they were demanding Russia to follow international law, uh, to, be, uh, to, to, do, uh, to, to be honest in this negotiation process. So, you know, so there is no trust between countries. There are so, so many, many suspicious and even all these cases with chemical, chemical weapons, I mean, um, Salzburg case, usually was mentioned there that Russia, Russia is, not how, is not honest player so in this process and it was very difficult uh, russian diplomats to uh, to present their position so i, I want to ask what's the difference in policy between the 70s um and now with new star because you mentioned that there's a major difference that's causing this um uh, policy uh, this um difference in approach can you explain that of course, it was uh, it was a uh, cold war. It was bipolarity. There were two countries who, who has who had the equal arsenal, so who had the same position in the world. Now, uh, I think the United States is one of the biggest and um, uh, huge powers, and it has it has many allies. And of course, Russia doesn't have now such maybe firm position. So, if to take into account our allies, and. Uh, and I think that that the atmosphere at that time was very different. So it was uh, concrete rules, concrete norms, how to negotiate, what to do to to create predictable situation in order not to destroy each other and the world. Um, so it was it was very it was very concrete in time. But now I think we have very unclear situation. We have many players. We have um, uh, we don't have this maybe. Uh, rules which were in 70s first of all we need to decide to decide what will be the rules of the future world order there are so many talks about about disorder now so that's why maybe i think also that it's very difficult to negotiate polina what, what are your thoughts well um um to some extent i agree with katerina in the way that um, of course um um, in the past, Russia was a superpower which controlled half of the world, right? Uh, similar to the United States. And now Russia is claiming to have the same power. Russia is claiming to establish the same, uh, I mean, the same rules of play as it was uh, during the Cold War. But um, in this regard, the United States are not probably accepting Russia on, in, on that way. And Russia is trying to, you know, to expand its influence. And we know that it's trying to expand not only its influence, but its borders. Uh, yes, unfortunately, I have uh, to touch upon the Crimea here. But anyway, um, for, for the United States, uh, what's, what I wanted to say that uh, all the climate uh, of the relations really between Russia and the United States, they're affecting the whole dialogue. And of course, the situation with Crimea, of course, the situation with other things, um, it, um, it affects the dialogue uh, because I have heard really from Russians sometimes that because of uh, that uh, general uh, political climate factors, 
the Americans were denying to discuss uh, concessions in the field of strategic weapons. I've heard that from Russians. And, uh, well, it's, it's, well it's, it's understandable, but on the other hand, Mm, I think that, yes, nuclear weapons, they deserve to be probably discussed a part of uh, general political climate, even though I'm from Ukraine, right? But uh, I also understand um, that it's not, uh, you know, it's not games. It's, it's really too serious to be, um, you know, to be dependent on anything else because it's too technical. And I think that this technical field should be uh, pursued anyway, no matter what the um, political uh, relations are. In this regard, I also wanted to say that New START is really important because I think that um, after uh, 2014, the U.S. Defense Authorization Act uh, forbidden U.S. military to um, contact, to communicate with Russians and to cooperate with Russians. But New START, uh, it provides uh, US and Russia with mechanisms to, of consultations, discussions, and so on, which still works. So imagine we won't have New START, and then any communications between military, it will stop. And then uh, some kind of a huge arms race will start from the both sides, because both sides would now uh, have the understanding of each other's capabilities, intentions, um, uh, sizes of arsenals, um, and it will lead to sort of misperception, to, lead, uh, to sort of arms race, and uh, it, it would be able to have some very grief uh, consequences at the end. Can you explain what New Start is and what it does? You talked about it a little bit where we get to see what Russia has, Russia gets to see what we have, because a lot of people don't know how important these treaties are. Uh, what's important between... Uh, arms treaty and the uh, arms control treaty and the disarmament treaty is that disarmament is uh, just the way you are cutting your arms, right? And arms control is the procedure when you are cutting your arms simultaneously uh, to be able to provide uh, and to keep the deterrence on the same level of effectiveness, right? So we have the same amount of heavy bombers, some amount of submarines and uh, land-based missiles. So we are cutting them simultaneously. And to know that we are doing that properly, uh, we are sending inspections to each other to observe what's happening in the rival camp, right? So inspections are coming here and there. We exchange the uh, telemetry or testing information, how, what we test, how it flies and so on. So your rival uh, sees that what's going on in your camp. And it makes your, so this transparency, it makes your predictable. And if both rivals are predictable, then the deterrent situation and this uh, crisis stability, is, it is stable. I mean, no one is going to attack anyone because you know that your enemy, what's your enemy doing? That is why you don't, you don't worry that he'll attack you tomorrow, right? So mm -hmm. this is the main thing about arms control. It provides transparency and stability between partners or rivals. So it provides you to understand your rival uh, and this understanding makes you more or less uh, calm, feeling calm about the future. And if you don't have this, you don't know what your rival, uh, your rival is thinking, what he's planning, uh, how he's testing his, uh, you know, bombs or missiles. And this makes you anxious. And feeling anxious makes you uh, thinking uh, aggressively, offensively, developing new offensive plans and programs and so on. That's how I see it. 
So that's the important takeaway I want people to have from this is that if New Start or no uh, treaty or any, you know, any, um, or just generally any arms control, like the importance of arms control, period, um, that we have to know what the other person has. So it's very integral to stability, you know, um, in this period when we do have weapons, even though we want to imagine a world where they don't exist. I also want to bring attention to the fact that in the 80s, uh, there were tens of thousands, uh, 60, 70,000 nuclear weapons, right? During that period. And they were cut down significantly to at least what we know, uh, around 14,000 weapons across the world with America and Russia holding 90% of them. Um, do I would like one of you to take on the question of how do we get from close to 70,000 nuclear weapons down to around 14. So we had we, we had two treaties and according to the last one I think this uh, uh, start two I think it's in English. Yes. It start two is in English. Yes, we we cut we cut it a lot of our arsenals and uh, I mean Russian uh, so Soviet Union arsenals and uh, we can we need to also to take into account uh, new countries uh, I mean Ukraine Belarus and Kazakhstan who also not cut they, they refused to have to have these uh, arsenals so so I think uh, all these changes uh, was done during this period and I think it was a, an atmosphere that we are creating new uh, new rules. We are creating new conditions for future. So it was negotiation process. Was uh, it was negotiation process between Reagan and Gorbachev. So I think right. that that it was a period of. Uh, and I think it this cutting of arsenals was was connected to this atmosphere and to this negotiation process. So and it was I think maybe illusion that we don't need such. We didn't need. Uh, such arsenals in such uh, such an amount of arsenals. So I think that's why. Yeah, yeah definitely. P P Polina, you want to add to that? Well, yes, probably. Um, I just want to add that, uh, yes, at the end of the Cold War, the idea of, uh, um, I think that the idea of uh, mutual rivalry between Moscow and Washington, it uh, actually it uh, discredited itself. And uh, for some time, nuclear weapons even were declared as obsolete. But, um, and really, and, you know, no one really understood why do we need that if we are not enemies anymore, I think. Uh, but at the end, uh, everything, um, you know, time showed that uh, probably nuclear weapons are like human nature. Um, none of us is ready to get rid of the highest symbol of power. Uh, that's what nuclear weapons are. Uh, that is why I think, um, that is why it didn't, it didn't go further, what I wanted to say. Yeah, because there, there are several things that I found interesting when I was doing research for this episode. And between George Bush Sr. and George Bush Jr., the most number of nuclear weapons were retired uh, during those presidencies during two Republican um, administrations. But I find that um, there's a, a interesting note, something important between the administrations of George Bush 
the daddy and George Bush, uh, the son versus Barack Obama, who under his administration, the least number of weapons, um, you know, were, were retired to put out of, out of commission. The main difference is the administrations. And in order for a relationship between, say, Gorbachev and Reagan, or, you know, you could start off with, um, you know, Boris Yeltsin, for example, um, you know, and the other U.S. presidents, is that they both sides have to want to play ball. Both sides have to want it to work, right? They have to want it this relationship to work. Um, under Obama, he had this goal of cutting nuclear weapons down, right? You know, a world without nuclear weapons. He he delivered speeches about this. However, uh, he had a resurrected uh, Vladimir Putin. He had a different Putin, <laughs> you know, even from, um, from 2000, which I think makes the difference in the world. But I want to ask you, starting with uh, Yekaterina, what do you think were some of the challenges that prevented Obama and Putin to cut down their arsenals? So, you know, um, my one of my students, uh, she did the research on um, U.S. administration nuclear policy, and we found that, uh, that uh, uh, U.S. policy on nuclear issues is very stable. It doesn't depend a lot on um, the concrete president and the, either Democrat or Republicans. So it's, 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 it's a very key question to the United States. That's why in some way when Obama proclaimed these uh, peaceful uh, words uh, that proclaimed this uh, decision to create uh, a world without nuclear weapons, um, you know that the last period of Obama, it was the, uh, a modernization of nuclear arsenal started so in the United States. So Can you explain what modernization means for people who don't know? So it means that it, it was a new budget for the new type of arsenals for for nuclear arsenals, which was I think adopted in uh, uh, 2011. I think it's about yeah, that's about sounds about right. I believe so. Yeah. So and what about uh, Vladimir Putin and Russian nuclear policy? I think. Uh, the problem is that uh, it is not the, the it is I think nuclear disarmament talks and all these uh, arms control talks. It is not about people. I mean, it's not about the concrete people and presidents. I know that Polina maybe she doesn't agree with me, but I think that the, <laughs> yes. But we had Vladimir Putin before Medvedev. You know this перезагрузка uh, when uh, um, mm -hmm. Obama came in, um, Obama's administration came to Russia and they started all this negotiation process. It was Medvedev as a president, not Putin. But I think that the, the, it, it, it was the same. It doesn't matter who Medvedev or Putin. I think it, uh, we have our uh, nuclear policy, and our nuclear policy is uh, really is based on uh, having these arsenals. So, so uh, our government, I think our president Medvedev at that period, he, he wasn't ready to, to negotiate really and to respond in the same manner as Obama talked to him. So I think, we, and we changed our foreign policy since 2007. Um, you should remember this Munich speech when Putin uh, said that uh, uh, in some in some way that Russia is not satisfied with the situation in the world and the U.S. Um, and uh, 
European policy. And then we had this 2008 Georgia, Russian-Georgian conflict, uh, and it was shock for the for, for Russia also and for world for the world. Then we have this uh, had this Ukrainian crisis. So I think that all these issues they influenced a lot on uh, on the Russian and American relationship. So so I like Obama a lot. But you know, I think that we we so our administration is not ready to negotiate in, the, in that manner. So we were waiting not maybe uh, peace process. We were waiting concrete arms control negotiation in order to come back to this deterrence policy uh, to make this world predictable and to talk to Americans on the same. To play uh, play with Americans the same game as it was during the Cold War. It's it's my position, but maybe I'm not right. Sorry, Polina, your thoughts. Well, yes, I'm I'm not going to disagree with Ekaterina because I also think that probably one president can make can't make a difference because um, there is a thing which we call uh, strategic culture, right? This is so so called um, like a portrait of a state in the in the field of defense, right? How the state um, defines threats and how the state used to confront those threats and how the state used to um, um, provide uh, the basic security uh, for, for itself. So I think that starting from Russia, for Russia, nuclear weapons, Russia has um, built up its uh, statehood since uh, Moscow uh, Kingdom uh, on the power politics from gathering lands and all the Russian uh, power, I mean, all the structure of the Russian empire was based on power. But Russia has always been a military state where military were the highest ranking aristocrats and uh, uh, where the uh, process of uh, uniting uh, the state was not coming like in Europe from, uh, the, from the basic you know, lands who needed uh, economically to be united but it always uh, came uh, from uh, the highest ranks, from Tsar, who, who gathered the lands and took them with the iron hand. So, um, it, and this is not a, you know, something uh, strange that for Russia, uh, nuclear weapons uh, also is implied as a sort of a symbol of that military power. Military state and the military power is very, uh, you know, they are founded uh, one for the other first. And the second, we should never forget that Russia is the former many years um, biggest empire, it's still the biggest state in the world, but it's an empire which um, actually, um, after the breakup of the uh, USSR, it remained with the mentality of the Cold War, where it still was a superpower. But what, uh, but, you know, it was not really uh, complying to the actual reality, but um, there were only two things remained uh, for Russia as a superpower. One was the permanent seat in the security, UN Security Council, but the other one, which is a really superpower dimension, and the attribute is uh, nuclear weapons, right? Which can, uh, which is equal, uh, you know, relatively equal, but a little bit higher than uh, those of the United States. So uh, it's a symbol of greatness for Russia. So, and even I think Russian. Uh, uh, Orthodox Church always say that uh, nuclear weapons are the symbol of sovereignty and uh, dignity for Russia. So Russian, I think that for Russians, uh, there is no way to destroy nuclear weapons because it's not, it's uh, even not a weapons. It's a symbol of uh, Russia in a way, in some ways. As for the United States, I think um, 
it's also a very um, you know it's state which uh, one of uh, which has its uh, power is one of its you know typical attributes right and um, now when obama was suggesting non-nuclear world i'm sure obama was uh, absolutely sincere because he knew that even though if there everyone will destroy nuclear weapons the united states will still remain the strongest uh, military uh, state in the world uh, because the conventional weapons were absolutely overwhelming uh, in any dimensions uh, to russia one so russians uh, of course uh, understood that at once and saying that okay but we are not ready for this inequality because you know with the nuclear weapons uh, once was uh, were called as the greatest equalizer right so if uh, russia is a little bit inferior in some kind of conventional weapons uh, to the united states they're absolutely not not inferior uh, if we are speaking about all this nuclear weapons greatness and um, of course uh, we know that russia can destroy the united states as well as the united states can destroy russia but but annihilate completely uh, and that idea, I think it uh, stands on the way of nuclear uh, disarmament. And of course, when Russia is saying that, okay, we, we are remaining with nuclear weapons and we are not only modernizing, but we are building new kinds of weapons and uh, you know, we are doing whatever to become greater. Uh, it, it also shows the United States the sign that, uh, of course, we will never uh, disarm uh, if, uh, if our rival uh, has uh, such uh, ambitious plans. So this, I think that this is an incentive that one drives to the other, but uh, the main thing is that no one really is ready to get rid of uh, nuclear weapons at the moment. So I want to ask you both about what the Russian people or the, you know, even Ukrainians even, um, what like what's their, just generally, what type of conversations are happening in media or how are just, you know, just common people thinking about this. I can tell you that in America, I think people don't understand the, the um, people don't understand the significance. I try in my reporting to explain it because it's honestly a drain on our economies. We have COVID-19. We have all of these healthcare issues that are happening with our society and money that could be used to deal with these issues are being put towards uh, nuclear weapons maintenance, right? Because there's never been a war. Obviously, there's been a nuclear attack that was initiated by America against Japan, but there's never been a war, right? Or a war. So what are, what, what are ways in which Ukrainians and 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 Russians are having this conversation about what their government should be doing and how they should reallocate these resources to other things, if that's happening at all. Hmm. Well, as for, for Ukrainians, uh, I think that, uh, you know, the most common narrative uh, now is that if we had nuclear weapons by 2014, Russia would never annex Crimea. <laughs> this is the main narrative. And that's why uh, probably, you know, that when there was a voting on the nuclear weapons test ban treaty uh, in UN in uh, 2017, Ukraine hasn't voted. Why? Because um, on one hand, 
Ukraine is the state who got rid of nuclear weapons, right? And showing, trying to show the example that let us live in a nuclear world. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, Ukraine has completely, uh, you know, it has been disappointed. Um, it was disappointed in uh, the idea of uh, nuclear disarmament, absolutely, completely, and ultimately, uh, and this having understood that if you're having um, such a powerful neighbor as Russia, you should always also show certain power. And we were absolutely defenseless in the 2014. We were absolutely not ready for the war. And um, so this is the case. I mean, what's the attitude of Ukrainian people towards nuclear weapons? Of course, we are probably not ready to build up nuclear weapons now from the scratch, right? But uh, the sentiments as for like a bitterness of nuclear disarmament is still here. And uh, the bitterness of the, of the idea of nuclear disarmament. So the only thing that Ukrainian people are trusting now are um, maybe guarantees, like a defense guarantees, like the United States have to um, NATO states or to Japan or South Korea. Uh, so a guarantees of uh, the powerful ally. This is only uh, one thing Ukrainians trust in, and that is why they have never voted um, for the nuclear weapons uh, ban treaty because they were actually supported uh, NATO partners because you know no NATO states have uh, voted for uh, TPNW because of uh, this nuclear umbrella which exists. So Ukrainians were just showing their support for the idea of uh, nuclear umbrella of the United States even though we are not under it. Uh, but but uh, anyway, uh, by not voting, we showed our protest for that idea of nuclear disarmament and our support to the idea of nuclear umbrella. Yekaterina? It's, it's very difficult to tell about Russian people because uh, we had the last survey on uh, the Russian position uh, towards uh, nuclear weapons in 2014. Uh, on 2015, I think, and uh, it was the question: uh, Do you do you afraid of nuclear war? And mo many people, it was the great number of people who were afraid of nuclear war because during this period, uh, during this Ukrainian con uh, con uh, situation, it was the um, it was the, like it, 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 there was understanding that it could be, I mean, nuclear conflict or maybe something like like this uh, between. Uh, you, uh, Russia and the United States. Uh, but now we don't know exactly what do people think about this. And um, if we talk about TV, uh, TV shows, of course, a lot of, there, there, there is a lot of information about nuclear arsenals, demonstrations. You know, our president likes to demonstrate different types of arsenals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I think it depends on the age. I think the elder uh, generation, they may be uh, like arsenals, they like nuclear weapons. They believe that we need to have it, and we need to 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 have these arsenals because we had uh, uh, many enemies around us. But if you talk about students and younger generation, they are more positive. They don't watch TV. They usually follow Twitter and other uh, media, so they are more progressive in this in this sphere. So I think that uh, future generation can save our world because they uh, more critically. Uh, towards this um, information and towards these nuclear weapons. And um, I think maybe, uh, so, so it depends on age, it depends on uh, uh, times also, because in 2014 we had conflict and people were afraid of, but now there is no any survey on this. So I don't know exactly what do people think. Right. 
I, I wanna so so basically it's I, I see right now that there's this impasse. We all talk, we all agree that there's an impasse where Russia sees it as a symbol of their power and you have America where there are just a number of disagreements that they have with their Russian counterparts. Um, one question that I always ask experts in this field to answer for our audience is people assume that you need 14,000 weapons to destroy the world. And in reality, I think we all know that between fallout uh, and environmental factors, you don't need that many anyway. Can you just uh, describe the gravity of what an intercontinental ballistic missile, just one or, or one warhead can do to the environment? Um, well, uh, I don't know as for the environment, well, okay, I know about the environment, but the thing is that, uh, first of all, you know, uh, what kind of nuclear weapons are, you know, in fashion now, not in fashion, but are used during the late Cold War and even now, uh, for example, um, um, the heaviest uh, ballistic missile, intercontinental ballistic missile, which uh, Russia is currently have, it's still used. And uh, actually, it's uh, preparing uh, the substitute for it, uh, similar, absolutely similar heavy missile. Uh, so it's uh, Satan SS-18, or and now it will be Sarmat. It carries um, 10 nuclear warheads. And uh, each of these nuclear warheads is 36 times more powerful than the one which was dropped on Hiroshima. As I heard, um, Russia is targeting uh, the most important strategic uh, object at the territory of the United States with uh, three missiles each, right? So can you imagine 36 uh, Hiroshima's uh, to multiply on 10, to multiply on three, and this is on the Union Station, just on the Union Station. What will remain from Washington, D.C.? After all, uh, the huge clouds will cover the sky and the sky won't be able to penetrate the earth and all the plants won't be able to grow. And then there will be effects of nuclear winter. And, you know, those who remain, I don't think that there will be more than one or two villages remain anywhere after that. Right. <laughs> Uh, I don't think that they will live happily ever after because they won't have anything just to grow to eat. So I think it will be just the beginning of the end. And I think that uh, those who die first will be luckier than those who survive. Yes, it, yes, precisely. Of course, yes. I'm, I'm just, I just want to drive it home that these things should not exist. So uh, Yekaterina, do you have anything to add? Of course, we have, if, for example, nuclear attack happens, so it will be two effects. Deterministic effects, it burns, radiation skill, uh, sickness, and then we have uh, sto uh, sto stochastic effects, so cancer or other things. So, of course, and uh, ecology will suffer a lot. It will be fallout or, or other effects. So I think we need to stop using thinking about this, not using we, stop, we need to stop thinking about how it could be, because it's very dangerous, I think. 
So from my point of view, we don't need a lot of arsenals in order to destroy the world. I don't know how many, it's, 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 it's not maybe true to, to say that it's, it's enough 10, uh, 10, for example, ballistic missiles to destroy the world, but maybe it will be more than 10, but it, it will be enough. And uh, I think that uh, it's, it is very serious. And I think the problem of our diplomacy now that many people who are now sitting and talking to each other on both sides, they have never participated in a real war. So they, they, they didn't know what is uh, the real war is. I mean, uh, because for example, the previous generation, even uh, Reagan and uh, Gorbachev, they remembered these uh, times. So they remembered the Second World War. So they, uh, they really understood uh, when you had so many deaths. I mean, so, and this generation of diplomats, they are, they, they, they think about the symbolism, they need to have this power, symbolic power, but they don't really think about the effects which could be, I think. And they think it's not very serious. That's why I think that we need to, to we need to, you know, all these um, um, organizations, non-governmental organizations who are now are working uh, to promote this uh, ban treaty, uh, they are working also with the um, ecologist organizations, because I think that we need to combine these things, not to think of only about uh, nuclear weapons, but also about ecology, uh, health issues. So I think it's very, because we don't need even to have a nuclear weapon. Uh, we can have Chernobyl, for example, the second. So Polina, she's from Ukraine. She, she knows well the effect of this um, catastrophe. So I think it's, it's very serious because we have a lot of things which can destroy the world. I went to Chernobyl, by the way, last year. And it's roughly about an hour outside of Kiev, I believe. And it's just incredible that outside of a major city in Europe, you have this catastrophe where scientists say that it will take thousands of years before that land is habitable again. Tens of thousands of years. And that was a nuclear incident. And so you're right. It just drives home the appreciation of what you know, uh, you know, like just, just, just a, a nuclear attack or even an incident can cause. What troubles me as a journalist when I'm asking American politicians about these subjects is that, among other things, uh, they have a responsibility to sign on legislation that approves billions of dollars for modernization, for example, for. Uh, you know, you know, anything nuclear and many of them don't understand the subject. And when I interview some officials on both sides, whether it be Democrats or Republicans, a lot of times they'll say, well, there's a factory or there is a company that produces these weapons or they produce these submarines uh, that, that the platforms that carry these weapons and I don't want to take jobs away from the American people or to be quite honest with you, a lot of these military based companies provide money to these elected officials. So there's an economic incentive not to, um, 
to go down a course of nuclear non-proliferation. That's important to know as well in America. I can't speak for Russia or, you know, but I know in America, that's definitely true. The money behind it. Um, unless you both want to add to that, I want to uh, end on a positive note by asking you, do you have any hopes about non-proliferation in the next 10 years or 15 years between America and Russia? If, uh, I don't know. Ekaterina, would you like to be versed? Uh, hopes, about hopes. Of course, I have such hope. And I think that, uh, so, you know, in Russia, as, as we don't have practical negotiation between the United States and Russia in this area, so we had recently this meeting on um, start new on the, uh, on the extension of this treaty. But uh, before we don't, we didn't have many negotiations or many uh, talks on this. So I believe in uh, this track to diplomacy. So we had many forums now between young, young diplomats, between young generation on this issue. And I hope that in the future we will have diplomats who will will be ready to talk to each other and uh, use the same language and maybe they will better understand this issue. So I, I, I believe that people with this cold mentality, they, that so this generation with cold mentality, it's, I, I, I know that it's not the, the question of age maybe. Of course, we, ha we have a lot of people of younger generation who, ha who has the same cold mentality, but I believe that, that if we, we'll keep our dialogue at least between young generation, between uh, students. Between, so we will, we will have this hope. So I be, that's why I, I think that we, we will have this. <laughs> so that's my thing, understanding. And it will not be right now, I mean, that, that I, I think that it's, it's like, it's not serious to talk that it will be extension of this treaty or not. So it's, it depends on many issues, uh, but I think that if we, 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 we will not extend this treaty, I, I'm sure that the dialogue will continue, at least it continues, so we will be going further to find the solution or to find the new ways how to, because we need this arms control arms control um, negotiation, you know that Russia and the United States, they have common position that we don't need that they that we don't need this ban treaty that's why maybe they will continue to negotiate to negotiate and to demonstrate that at least we have this arms control uh, regime if we don't uh, if we can't create this uh, if we don't need this ban regime uh, ban tpnw so we need to have negotiation on uh, arms control issues so that's why maybe they it it, it helps a little bit but Let's see. Yeah, Katerina and Paulina, maybe you can answer this question, but you brought up the treaty on the uh, prohibition of nuclear weapons. And so uh, this is a UN resolution 71, um, uh, 258. The, it, it decided to convene in, 2000, in 2017 to negotiate a legally binding instrument to prohibit nuclear weapons leading towards their total uh, elimination. And so, um, Paulina, do you want to add on to what Ye 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 Katarina talked about? But please explain the treaty 
on the proliferation of nuclear weapons for people who don't know what that is? Uh, well, uh, yes. First of all, um, uh, what is interesting is that uh, nuclear weapons, um, Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, is actually trying to double the message of uh, Treaty on Nuclear or on Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, in the way that there is the Article 6 of Non-Proliferation Treaty, which also promise that everyone will uh, go for disarm nuclear disarmament in a good way. But what's the difference between um, uh, TPNW and uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty is that Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty actually divides the world into two groups. Uh, the states uh, who are permitted to have nuclear weapons, such as five uh, permanent members of the Security Council, the US, Russia, France, uh, China, and UK, and uh, those who are not permitted to have nuclear weapons, and those are actually everyone else. So on the basic idea of um, a nuclear non-proliferation treaty is uh, discriminatory, actually, right? And the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is um, uh, proclaiming uh, that uh, actually uh, no one has the right to have, uh, to possess nuclear weapons. No one has the right to threaten with uh, nuclear weapons, which means nuclear deterrence policy. And let us all uh, disarm, right? So the idea of TPNW is much more generous, but uh, the problem is um, that um, the NPT uh, still being discriminatory, discriminatory it, uh, it reflects the you know, objective reality where there are powerful state, less powerful state, uh, you know, influence and so on, uh, while TPNW is ignoring actually reality, the reality. And also, um, what I would like to say that it, it by doubling the function of uh, TPNW uh, of NPT, TPNW is actually trying to create its own reality. So we have a um, very strong, I believe, um, the danger that uh, some some states will join TPNW, some states will uh, remain in the NPT. Some states will stop trusting both of them, saying that if uh, one is not credible, the other is still not credible. So, and, and then the full anarchy will come. That is why I think um, most states are not, I mean, yeah, many states are not supporting uh, TPNW because it ignores actual reality where nuclear weapons are still connected uh, with the ultimate symbol of power. And uh, there is also the idea uh, that, okay, let us uh, follow the main idea of uh, TPNW, saying that it's harmful for the people, and uh, you know it's harmful um, anyway. And uh, let us, you know, make a voting in every country where all citizens will express their will if they would like to disarm. So there is an idea that all democratic countries will follow the will of their citizens and will disarm. But what happens then? That non-democratic countries, such as, for example, North Korea will remain with nuclear weapons. What a nice reality where only authoritarian states will remain with nuclear weapons. Uh, it will be really not so comfortable world, right? Uh, and also, you know, nuclear weapons are really bad and evil, but what if that evil uh, preserves us from making something even worse, right? Uh, because there has still has never been a war after the Second World War, when we lost more than uh, you know 
not 20, even 40 or 50 million people, right? Uh, there have never been a war. And what if um, it has never happened before because of nuclear weapons? At the end, if we are speaking about the uh, you know, destruction of uh, annihilation of kinds of weapons, I think that nuclear weapons are just a symbol. And we should never forget that uh, maybe about you know, 300,000 of people really died from the nuclear weapons. But how many people die every day from using conventional arms? Every day in the wars, at the streets, anywhere, and no one speaks about forbidding conventional weapons, even in a you know, minor sense. So for me, all weapons are evil, but the most evil weapons are those which are used. Nuclear weapons are some kind of theory and fantasy and very much control thing. And conventional weapons are something which are real evil. And I think that, but it's a big business, it's a big money, and no one, no one will ever start speaking about real uh, destruction of conventional weapons. So I think that, you know, um, it's a sort of a balance which has been created. It's not a perfect world, but uh, um, I'm not sure whether TPNW can make it better. Okay, so I'll let you end off, Ekaterina, before we go. So I don't agree with Polina because uh, I uh, spent a lot of time with people who, who promote this treaty. So the, first of all, I would like to say that um, it is, uh, TP, uh, the TPNW, it is not against NPT. So it is additional instrument to make our world safer. So, and if you read the, the preamble of this treaty, there is, uh, there is words that this treaty is not like, um, it, it is like associated instrument to, to make this world more, uh, more predictable and without nuclear weapon. And I think it's, it's uh, the, and the second thing I would like to say that it, um, I think people who, who was trying and countries who, who are promoting this treaty, uh, they are not naive. They understand that, uh, of course, the uh, nuclear weapons are very popular among um, not only non-democratic, but also and democratic countries. And of course, uh, it is not uh, it, it, it will not be very quick period to uh, uh, to make this uh, uh, to, to 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 cut these weapons. But I think that the idea of the treaty is to create a new norm, because now the nuclear weapon is is a norm. So it's like you, 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 can, you can have it. Of course, it is prohibited to, according to the NPT to have this treaty, but it could be. But this treaty, I mean, the TPNW, it is um, the attempt to make this denormal. So like chemical weapon and biological weapon. And I think it's a good thing to, to create the future platform for, uh, to, for destroying these weapons. I think that, that that's why I think it's a very important step to try to create new reality because reality could be changed. I believe this. Yeah, I hear you. So, Polina, what are your hopes? The United States and Russia will, uh, you know, find some common sense in the authorities and uh, uh, will keep on going on the way of uh, further arms control. So that the new start will be extended and uh, plus uh, some kind of... Uh, new uh, arms uh, reduction arms control treaty will also be added because uh, there are so many new weapons types which haven't still been discussed which haven't still been you know covered by the arms control treaty and they're doubling and tripling 
and uh, they also should be covered and observed and controlled anyway. So I, I hope for the further reductions and further dialogue of the United States and Russia in the field of arms control. Absolutely. Uh, I'll, my last question for the both of you, what is it like to be a woman in this field? It's very difficult to be women in this field, especially in Russia. And uh, I think I have trouble uh, to two problems because I'm, I, I'm a woman and I, live, I don't live in Moscow. So I'm from province. <laughs> so it means that all politics, high politics is doing in Moscow and usually men, is particip men participate uh, in this process. So of course it's very difficult. And when for the first time I came to Geneva to UN mission, um, the first question from Russian diplomats was what is going on in your region? Why, 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 why did you come here? So, and why, why do you study this issue? So, so it's, it's not easy. Because, you know, these nuclear issues, they are usually men, men issues. And I think that's why maybe I'm very supporting the International Women League for Peace and Freedom. <laughs> so in this process to, to promote this uh, ban nuclear ban treaty. So sometimes I think that our, my, my colleagues, uh, my, my partners from Moscow, they are not taking me seriously. I think so, unfortunately. Wow. Wow. So just so and it, it sounds like it's very blatant. Maybe. But it's truth. You, you, you can see that many diplomats in our staff, they are men. Right. Right. The negotiation process, you can see that even in the UN missions, uh, usually men are speaking. Even if, if we have even if we have women in our delegations. It's like tradition. Yeah. Yeah, Polina. Uh, well, we, we don't have um, such a strong male-dominated tradition in Ukraine, actually. Um, and uh, maybe in a way we are closer to Europe in that sense that um, we are not, I, mean, I, I can't say that I have never been discriminated, I have ever been discriminated as a woman in the field. But I can say that I have been discriminated as Ukrainian who is studying, uh, dealing with nuclear weapons and um, strategic studies. And uh, I've told you, uh, Terrell, uh, that once I've been banned from participation in the POSA program, Program on Strategic Stability Evaluation, which was uh, made by Georgia Tech and uh, James Martin Center for Nonproliferation. And um, actually, you know, it's my field very much, but I was personally denied for participation saying that no, you are not from a nuclear weapon state, so uh, you'll never be able to join. This was a big discrimination for me because, uh, so does it mean that I should contribute to the development of nuclear weapons in my state? Uh, otherwise, you know, I can't study whatever. So this is something which um, I think it's, it's really not fair. And it's really, as you know, Ekaterina already said that she's been also somehow um, attitude in not a good way by the fact that she's from uh, province, right? And I think that the tendency is very strong in Moscow saying that, oh, everything belongs to Moscow and uh, the regions doesn't have any right to, to speak and they don't have any, you know, uh, even have any ideas. I think it's really unfair. And I think that we should prove the opposite, that the regions can say their own words 
that women can say their own word and um, it's not worse than the male word. And um, probably that's why we are here with you, Terrell, <laughs> right? The thing about my podcast is that I want to decenter men in these conversations and amplify voices of women, um, ethnic minorities, racial minorities, because all of these decisions impact the people who are from countries that are not America, that are not, you know, they, or, or, or they, don't, they don't come from the center of power, right? Uh, the continent of Africa, for example, is most likely or stands a greater chance to be the greatest victim of climate change even though the countries on that continent do not emit the CO2 levels that America does, that China does, and other developed nations do. So it would be like saying, you're you know, telling uh, uh, an African, you cannot participate in a conference or a program about climate change because you're not emitting the highest numbers of CO2 levels into the atmosphere, right? So it, it, it's, so all of these things, you're right. It, it, you know, I try to challenge all these things. I think people like us, we have the ideas because we understand the consequences. And also, I'm just tired of hearing men lead all these conversations, to be frank. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, to be frank. And I'm happy that you all, you both, Yekaterina and Polina came on Black Diplomats today to talk about nuclear weapons, uh, non-proliferation and control, uh, not only from a technical standpoint, but from a personal one. And I hope to have you on again. Thank you. We, we, we hope to, to be with you again. Absolutely. It was a very interesting talk. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for tuning in to Black Diplomats. We especially want to shout out our patrons. If you like this episode, please become a patron at the link in the episode notes. Also, rate and subscribe to Black Diplomats on your favorite podcast platform. The intro and outro music is brought to you by my fellow Detroiter, Tall Black Guy.